Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. I'm not Dylan. My name's Kirby. Dylan is on a very well-deserved holiday right now. He'll be back on air in February with his new show, Future Perfect, in this time slot. And in the meantime, for the next couple of months, there'll be a few different broadcasters guest hosting in this time slot. I want to start the show by paying my respect and gratitude to Wurundjeri elders past and present. And also, as I'm broadcasting, kind of carrying carrying awareness and learning and doing my best to work in solidarity with communities here and further afield who are resisting colonisation and occupation. Someone who's dedicated much of the past 20 years to resistance to occupation and to the Free Palestine movement is Michael Sheikh. He's now an organiser with Free Palestine Melbourne and part of the team who've been organising the weekly Sunday rallies in the CBD. I'm going to talk to Michael about all this and going to be paying attention to this fella. That's the sound of the noisy miner, a prolific native bird that's also known to bully their neighbours. Jacinta Humphrey is a PhD candidate and urban ecology researcher at La Trobe Uni and Jacinta has been studying the effects of noisy miner populations on forest birds in urban and peri-urban environments going to be talking to Victoria Winata and Ria Samajo, two artists who are working on two theatre events. Victoria's event is May 1998, which is on at the Motley Bauhaus from December 13th to 16th, and Ria's is Surat Suratnya, which is on now at La Mama. Those two projects are highlighting Tragic events bookending the Sahato era in Indonesia. Victoria and Ria will be joining me in the studio to talk about both projects and the relationships between them. That's coming up on the grapevine this morning. Triple R. Michael Sheikh is a member of Free Palestine Melbourne and has been involved in pro-Palestine activism for... More than 20 years, he was based in the West Bank in the early 2000s, working as a media coordinator for the International Solidarity Movement. And Michael joins me on the line now. Hey, Michael. Hello, Kirby. I'm going to be kind of asking you about uh, the the recent past in a moment, but I first want to just 
check in in the present moment and I'm really curious to know how what are Monday mornings like for you over the past nine weeks what how do you feel when you wake up on Monday morning I feel that I've got a lot to do and I try and push through it I try not to think too much about what's going on in Palestine as um, I'm sure you can understand it's uh, quite horrific and it's I think if you're an activist these days, it's very important to look after your mental health. Uh, if you know too much about um, a genocidal situation, it can leave you quite depressed and angry, and you can burn out quite quickly. So I, I think it's important to um, focus on what you can do uh, rather than immersing yourself in the... Um, horror that's happening in the Gaza Strip today. Mm. That's my experience anyway. Mm. I know that the term genocide, you use the word genocidal situation, and I know that term is something that's kind of being debated and discussed um, in the context of international law, and I should kind of say that we're neither of us are international law um, experts, but you are someone who has extensive experience uh, both uh, in occupied Palestinian territories and also in kind of local uh, solidarity efforts. So um, I guess thinking about uh, your your activism and, and your uh, solidarity work, um, can you kind of take me back to to the early 2000s? And, and I'm curious to know what your kind of... Um, spark or motivation was at the time? Uh, well, you've got to take yourself back to the post-9-11 world, the war in terror, on terror and all that, Afghanistan and the looming invasion of Iraq and Israel's crackdown on the Second Intifada, which was extremely violent at the time. And there were a lot of people around the world who were seeing how the war, um, people like George Bush and John Howard and Tony Blair were lying about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and using that, that as a pretext to war. And at the same time, Israel was lying about the Palestinians and using that as an excuse to ethnically cleanse great tracts of the West Bank and destroy thousands of houses in the Gaza Strip. Now, I'll note that it wasn't a fraction, the violence wasn't anywhere near as bad as it is today, but at the time, it seemed horrific. And there were a lot of people around the world who felt that they needed to do something about it. The Palestinian resistance to Israel's occupation has always been predominantly non-violent, but the levels of force being used against unarmed demonstrators in those days was such that all nonviolent resistance to the occupation had collapsed. The only resistance left was cells of highly motivated young men armed with assault rifles and suicide bomb vests. So the Palestinian um, civil society did put out a call for international activists to come and work with the Palestinians thereby reducing the amount of force that Israel could use in dispelling Palestinian resistance. Um, and that's why myself, um, 
a friend, another friend from Canberra, and the people from around the world went to Palestine to see what we could do to help. And when you say that they're calling on international um, international support, was that sort of a a request to bear witness to what was happening? Was it what what were they sort of um, what sort of support were they asking of you at the time? Um, not to bear witness, but to actually work alongside the Palestinians in nonviolent and resisting the population. The truth is, if there's Americans and Australians and Europeans mixed in among a Palestinian crowd that's demonstrating or taking part in acts of nonviolent civil disobedience, the Israeli military cannot just shoot them with a machine gun because there'll be too much diplomatic uh, repercussions for that. So the level of force that was able to be used against student activists, um, women's organizations, trade union movements, which are trying to build a broadly based mass movement against the occupation, would be diminished. So that's the kind of thing they wanted. Um, yes, bear witness. By all means, go back to your own country and talk about what you've seen. But also be active. You know, solidarity, as I say today, is a verb. Uh, actively resist the occupation um, by answering the call of Palestinian civil society to stand with them against the violence that was being deployed against them. It's not fine to say that violence is wrong and it doesn't work when you're living in Melbourne, but if you really want to help nonviolent resistance in the developing world, you've got to uh, help them find nonviolent alternatives against a very violent system. So that's what they were asking for, and that's why the International Solidarity Movement was formed. And um, people sort of arguing for Israel's right to defend itself in this current moment. Um, I suppose you you were drawing attention there to the um, the taking up of arms by by Palestinians, um, and and I suppose that's putting putting this current situation in a context of of something that's been going on for a lot longer than uh, since October seventh, um, which. I think is really important to to kind of keep in mind. And you your your work um, in the early two thousands and in sort of two thousand and five two thousand and six, as I understand it, um, could you could you tell me a bit about the the Free Gaza movement and the the Freedom Flotillas? Sure. Um, uh, eventually, Israel lost patience with the international solidarity movement. Two of our activists were murdered by the Israelis, and a lot of others were injured. Um, most of the coordinators, including myself, were eventually arrested and deported and allowed to return to Palestine. So we began to think about what we could do from the outside. And there were a few ideas tossed around, but the one that I favored the most was... Um, chartering boats to, to break the siege of the Gaza Strip, because the purpose of non-foreigners going to Palestine is to reveal the hidden violence of the occupation that the media generally ignores. Uh, like you say, this violence didn't start on October the 7th, but because a lot of Israeli Jews were killed, 
all of a sudden that became newsworthy, the day-to-day -day violence against Palestinians is just background noise for the Australian media, and they generally filter it out. And one of the great acts of violence which were being committed um, from the mid-2000s up until now has been the quiet blockade of the Gaza Strip to punish the people there for having Hamas as their government. And essentially, nothing enters or leaves the Gaza Strip without Israel's say-so. So, um, raw materials for factories were stopped ages ago. Exports of things like strawberries and dates and other products to other parts of Palestine and the Middle East, that's no longer allowed. People suffering from cancer on the lap to leave for um, better hospitals and specialist medical equipment is not allowed in. And that has been going on uh, for more than 15 years, uh, about 17 years. So um, that is a hidden violence we're trying to draw attention to, a permanent unemployment rate of 45% because of the Israeli blockade. So we chartered a few boats and we decided that we would sail into Gaza, which Israel claimed that it no longer occupied because it was no longer had troops in the Gaza Strip, it just had surrounded it with fences and walls and soldiers and warships. And we decided we'd break the blockade by bringing humanitarian supplies into the Gaza Strip. And we were quite successful uh, initially. Initially, Israel was quite clear that they wouldn't give us the public relations gift of a confrontation of the high seas. And our boats got through, and we broke the blockade. Eventually, Israel's uh, response became more and more hardline. They rammed one of our boats and uh, nearly sank it. And from 2009 onwards, they never let any boats through. So then we decided to send in a flotilla of 10 boats to break, break the blockade. And that culminated in the catastrophe of June um, uh, 2010, when 10 activists were killed not in Israeli or Gaza's territorial waters, but on the high seas as an act of piracy by Israeli commandos who were determined to stop the ships going through. Now, it was a terrible price to pay, but we did refocus international attention on the hidden violence of the Gaza blockade. So those are the kind of creative, non-violent actions that uh, international activists who were unable to go to Palestine were still able to do from the outside. Mm, and so you said that that drew international attention. Um, and it was at that time, were you based in Melbourne? Yes, I was. I was um, just a media officer for the um, uh, Gaza Flotilla project. So I liaised with the Australian media. I remember when I first heard that they'd killed people, on unarmed peace activists on the high seas, I actually didn't believe it. And it was only when Reuters actually broke the story that I realised that something had gone terribly wrong. Um, but yes, it, it um, certainly that violence was headline news for about two or three days running around the world. Mm. Uh, so, like I said, it was a terrible price to pay, but we did reveal the hidden violence of the occupation, because the, the perception of the, the mainstream media will give you that 
when there's no Palestinian resistance, all's quiet. And mm. there's more or less peace in Palestine. But that's never been the case. According to Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and all the main human rights regimes around, um, um, organizations around the world, what we have throughout the whole of Israel and the occupied territories is a regime of apartheid based on Jewish supremacy. And that requires a very high level of force to maintain it day in, day out. Unfortunately, that's not covered in the mainstream media unless there's a major incident, such as an attack on an international peace flotilla or the recent violence we've seen recently. And it sounds like at the time, you know, you were um, getting media attention and and people were paying attention um but i'm curious to know particularly here here in melbourne what what was the sort of the general sentiment if people found out what you were working on what you were doing uh sort of i suppose the average person how did they react i think um 20 years ago public awareness of the Middle East in general, and Palestine in particular, was very low. Uh, most people thought it was a Jewish-Muslim thing and they should just learn to get along. They didn't understand the dynamics of colonialism and resistance. I think gradually, as a result of increased Israeli brutality, and events such as the attack on the international aid flotilla have forced people to reconsider their, their views on Israel and Palestine and learn more about it. I remember uh, I once got an email from um, Patrick Wolfe, um, who was a, a quite famous Australian um, uh, uh, academic who studied um, settler colonialism. And he said he remembered the Sharpeville massacre in South Africa and how until then a lot of people had been trying to look away and ignore what was happening in um, South Africa. And all of a sudden they were confronted with the reality of South African apartheid and they had to do, felt they had to do something about it. And that was in 1960. And it took another 30-some years before the apartheid regime finally fell there. I think we've had a lot of sharp bills in the last 15 years or so. And more and more people are realizing that if you care about racism every, anywhere, you've got to understand it's a global problem. And the center of that struggle between justice and racism is in Palestine today. And that's why groups like Black Lives Matter, um, Australian Aboriginal activists, um, feminist groups, they've kind of reorientated their policy platform to focus more on Palestine and solidarity with the Palestine because it really is a centre of a much larger struggle in the world today. And, 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 how, and how are you feeling about the kind of current uh, sentiment here, looking at things like the, the weekly Sunday rallies in the CBD that, that Free Palestine Melbourne has been uh, coordinating? How, how are you feeling about that? Honestly, I never thought I'd see anything like it. Um, I've been amazed that nine Sundays in a row, tens of thousands of Melburnians have turned up again and again to protest and march, to denounce what Israel's doing, 
denounced the position of the Albanese government. And if you listen, if you go around and talk to the audience and uh, collect donations like I do, it's amazing how, you know, like young students and um, pensioners and people from all different nationalities, they really get it now. They really understand what's happening in Palestine. And, you know, they're not pro-Hamas. They're not anti-Semites. They have a very nuanced understanding of what's happening. And they are indignant at the Albanese government's um, cowardice on this issue. And... Um, in the early sort of, you know, maybe seven or eight weeks ago, it seemed like there was a maybe a, um, a peak in attendance at the rallies. Um, I've seen different numbers floating around. Um, obviously, it's hard to, to estimate how many people in such a large crowd, but I've seen um, estimates of, you know, up to... 50,000 people, some people saying 25,000 people. Um, and then yesterday I saw an estimate of 5,000 people. Um, I'm curious to know in your kind of um, knowledge and also the, I don't know if, if Free Palestine Melbourne does any sort of um, tracking of such things, but have you noticed attendance at the rallies has been kind of waning over time? Uh, yes, but I don't think that means any waning of our support. It just means that I mean, it's a lot to ask people to give up nine Sunday afternoons in a row as we head into Christmas shopping season and all of that. I, I totally understand that people sometimes have other commitments that stop them from coming, but um, they come when they can. And still, having... 10,000 or five, uh, to five, let's say five to 10,000 people show up yesterday and march through the city in a ninth consecutive rally is something that Melbourne's never seen before. So it's, um, it's quite moving um, for someone who's been doing this a long time uh, to see such a diverse, enthusiastic crowd um, stand up for um, a country at the other end of the world because they believe in the Palestinian story and they want to be on the right side of history and, and support them in their struggle for freedom. So, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it's not as big as it used to be, but it's still massive by Melbourne standards. I believe you were there and you saw the numbers of people. And if you stand on the corner of Swanson Street and watch them go by, you feel the weight of, of people and you can see the diversity of the crowd, and it's um, something amazing to behold, I think. So, yeah, there's been a small drop-off of numbers, but I don't think there's been any drop-off of public support for us. Mm, yeah, I agree, and I suppose there's also been a... Um, oh, I'm not sure the word exactly, but maybe a... Um diversity of actions as well so as well as the rallies also seeing you know strikes protests um other sorts of actions um and the sit intifada as well um so of course the reflection of 
you know, a, a headcount of people attending a Sunday rally is, is not a reflection on, on sort of um, broader solidarity. Um, but as, as we see kind of the... Uh, you mentioned earlier towards the start of the interview and... Um, I've heard you say this before, I think maybe off air as well, that it's, it's difficult to continue to see and witness the the violence and, and the deaths in Gaza um, and looking at the, the uh, death toll uh, as of yesterday, I believe it was 17,700. Um, and that you know shows no um sort of is not slowing down um and i i suppose i'm 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 curious about someone like you who has been involved in this work for for two plus decades how do you kind of balance um the the sort of urgency of this work with a sense of maybe um uh, what's the word? Stamina or, or you know, resilience. Um, when we see, you know, I know that the uh, the violence since October seven has been a bit of a flashpoint for actions and solidarity. When that does, it can be a motivator, but it can also lead to burnout. So, so how do you and the Free Palestine Melbourne team kind of balance that? Well, well uh, I know a lot of people are depressed and very upset um, and you know some are taking stress leave as a result and I encourage them to do so I think you've got to always think long term and if the, the horror is too much if you feel like you need to take a break over Christmas with your family and turn your back on what's happening in Palestine I encourage you to do so I guarantee you Palestine will still be there when you've taken your break and you're ready to rejoin the struggle. Uh, you have to always look after yourself. Personally, I never imagined I'd see such appalling violence as I've seen of late. Um, backed by all the leaders of the Western world who insist it is justified because Israel has the right to defend itself. And Yes. So, I mean, I've, I haven't seen anything like this, and I'm as horrified as anybody else. Uh, but I do think it's important to realize that even after the bombs stop, stop falling on Gaza, the struggle will go on. It's not about the present crisis. It's about a long-term struggle against Israeli apartheid. And if you want to be a part of that, then you've got to look after yourself, I think, and take a long-term view and say, look, I know this is important right now, but I can't do it. I've got to look after myself and my family. As long as you're in it for the long haul and you make that commitment to come back, I think that's a perfectly justified um, position to take. Mm. Um, thank you. Thanks for kind of a, a very thoughtful and... Um, yeah, I think important things for for us to keep in mind. Um, I am conscious that I've kept you on the phone longer than I said I would. Um, but is there anything that that I haven't asked you about, or anything that you're really really keen to to share that uh, that we haven't talked about yet this morning? Um, I just you know elaborate on what I just said. Um, 
If your goal is to stop the violence in Gaza now, you probably might find yourself get disappointed and burnt out very quickly uh, because our capacity to change that from Melbourne is quite limited. If your goal, however, as Free Palestine Melbourne's goal, is to build up a broadly-based grassroots anti-apartheid movement in Melbourne into the future so that this place becomes um, a hostile environment for Israeli businessmen, arms companies, even their athletes and um, um, other representatives to do business, then that's something, that's a long-term goal that you can commit yourself to, and it's achievable. And we're doing it now. Um, you, you said about, yes, there's more than just the rallies going on. There's a massive rally that's going to take place on Wednesday in Dandenong. There's mobilizations happening all over in Melbourne. There was a school strike. Kids walking out of school last Thursday because they say, we can't go to school while schools are being bombed in Gaza. So there's a lot of encouraging things going on. And hopefully that kind of momentum can be carried over into the future so that we don't just have groups such as Free Palestine Melbourne working to build up solidarity with the Palestinians, but we have a genuine anti-apartheid movement um, uh, um, uh, t take over the city. And uh, as we saw in the 20th century, against South African apartheid. That's the kind of long-term commitment um, that I think is um, much more valuable than any short-term burst of enthusiasm if you want to really make a difference um, for Palestine. And I do also want to say that, you know, on that idea of um, Melbourne becoming hostile territory, to Israeli businesses. Um, just want to, you know, clarify that, as I know from, from off-air conversations that we've had, that does not mean, that's not an anti-Jewish sentiment. It's certainly not driven by any anti-Semitism. It's, it's driven by an anti-Zionist um, philosophy um, seeking to, to uh, boycott, uh, boycott businesses that are benefiting from or directly supporting the occupation of Palestine and the ongoing um, apartheid there. So just want to kind of clarify that. Um, yeah, so, sorry I didn't make that clear. Look, uh, um, we're an anti-racist movement and we're against Israel because it's an apartheid regime, according to all the main human rights organisations in the world. Um, I would emphasize that some of our most hardworking activists in Free Palestine, Melbourne, are actually Jewish and Israeli, former soldiers, um, for instance. So, um, yeah, it's um, certainly not about um, anti-Jewish feeling any more than the struggle against South African apartheid was driven by hostility to white people. We're an anti-racist movement. and anybody's welcome to join. And if folks do want to join or find out more about um, 
Free Palestine Melbourne, they can do that at fpmelbourne.org um, or you can search Free Palestine Melbourne on um, most of the major social media platforms um, and also the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network at apan.org.au has an ongoing kind of updated list of um, solidarity uh, actions on their website as well. Michael Shake. Thank you so much for, for chatting to me on The Grapevine here in Triple R. Thank you for having me. Triple R. That is the sound of the noisy miner, a sound that I imagine would be very familiar to Jacinta Humphrey, who is a PhD candidate at La Trobe Uni uh, researching urban ecology. And Jacinta has recently published an article titled The Noisy Neighbour Conundrum, What Influences the Value of Urban Sites for Forest Birds? The piece was published last week in the journal Urban Ecosystems and Jacinta's here with me to chat about it. Hey, Jacinta. Hey, Kirby. How are you doing? I'm well and I'm uh, stoked to be talking about urban birds. Um, I'm curious about whether you have a favorite bird? I get asked that question a lot, actually. <laughs> um, and my answer is always the yellow-tailed black cockatoo, simply because they sound amazing. I wish I had a sound of that queued up. I'll have to find <laughs> one. <laughs> um, do you have a least favorite bird? Is that also a question you get asked a lot? Oh, the, the least favorite one would have to be the noisy miner, unfortunately. They're, they're not, not high on my list. <laughs> um, why is that? So noisy miners are naturally quite territorial birds, uh, which is fine normally, but what, what they tend to do is form these large family groups. And then if anything passes into that family's territory, they will get quite aggressive and work their hardest to chase it out of their territory. So they're, they're pretty big bullies in, in our cities. Yeah, I've heard that they the term mobbing used in relation to noisy miners. Can you explain yes. what that means? Yeah, so mobbing is a series of coordinated physical attacks. So what that means is they'll all kind of they'll call out to each other to get everyone to come um, and they all kind of get to the same place and then they will start dive bombing and swooping the, the bird that's entered their territory and sometimes they will actually make contact with that bird and peck it or even kill small birds. And what types of birds are the noisy miners kind of targeting usually? Is it just, I guess it's kind of indiscriminate as I understand it, but but focused on their kind of territory? Yeah, yeah. So they're basically if anything enters their territory, they will probably have a go at it. It might be a bird, it could be a cat, a dog, they'll chase people. Um, one of the academics from the Trove University said he once saw one chase a Coke can as it rolled down the road because they, they didn't like the noise it was making. So they are pretty indiscriminate. 
but um, where they are having a big impact is that those smaller birds, um, which would normally hang out in more bushland areas, they're the ones that are really at risk. And that's something that you uh, witnessed in your recent um, research study. So um, you, well, actually, I'm curious about when you when you kind of came up with this study when you were going into it. Did you intend to study noisy miners? No, not at all. So we wanted to try and understand um, the types of habitat that was going to be beneficial for for smaller forest birds in the hopes that we could um, come up with some advice as to how people living in cities and local governments could actually improve habitat for these types of birds. But what we found was that the, the strongest... Uh, kind of driver as to whether or not small forest birds would turn up at a particular location was noisy miners. So as soon as you've got um, large numbers of noisy miners in an area, we're just losing a lot of species. Right. And so talk to me about, you mentioned bushland habitat earlier. Was it, um, what what sort of habitats or environments were you kind of um, targeting or looking at in this study? So I was mainly actually standing in residential streets throughout the eastern and northern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, so these are areas that would have once been covered by woodlands or forest prior to the arrival of Europeans here. Um, and many of these suburbs did actually have a decent amount of tree cover left. So they haven't been completely cleared. There's still um, quite a few gum trees there, some some habitat. Um but yeah, uh, they're pretty much inundated by noisy miners. Yeah, so you were looking at um, kind of, yeah, urban and peri-urban areas, residential areas, um, and you were the single observer in this study and you undertook, I was reading, a total of 1,500 individual surveys. What does that mean? It sounds like an incredibly high number of surveys. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I visited uh, 300 different sites across Melbourne and I went to each one five times over the course of about um, a year and a half. So each survey uh, consisted of me standing there for 10 minutes and writing down any species of birds that I could see or hear in the area around me. So yeah, 1,500 of those. Wow. Um, and you were looking at uh, one one of the types of birds that you kind of found and were looking at were called insectivore birds. Can you explain to me who are the insectivores? Yeah, so insectivores are, are birds that eat insects, as their name suggests, and um, they, they're often quite small birds. So these are the ones that noisy miners can have a big impact on. Uh, so in our, our urban areas, there are things like pardalotes, which are really tiny little birds that are feeding on insects up in the canopies of gum trees. They can also be things like grey fantails, which are slightly bigger um, and might be hanging out in kind of some shrubs if you've got some decent uh, native shrubs there. So, uh, and, and also down to um, superb fairy wrens who are often hopping around down on the ground level. So they can be using different types of plants, but all feeding on insects. Mm. Um, and, and I'm curious about sort of why 
why this kind of family or or type of bird? Why is why is that an important um, kind of uh, neighbor in in the ecosystem? Yeah, so forest and woodland birds in southeastern Australia are a group that um, I guess people are concerned about from a conservation perspective because we have cleared enormous areas of their habitat over the last 200 or so years. Um, And that's especially true in Melbourne. We've seen huge conversions of what would have once been extensive woodlands into what Melbourne is today. So um, we wanted to focus on these particular birds because these are the ones that people are often hoping to get back into their gardens. They're ones that local councils are quite interested in trying to encourage. Um, So we thought this would be a good a good use of our time. Mm. Um, and and you, you in the early sort of um, parts of the article, you mention the effects of urbanization on various species, and you talk about three kind of uh, categories of, um, I suppose, adaptations or responses to urbanization amongst different species. You talk about urban exploiters, adapters and avoiders. Can you talk me through what those three kind of um, categories mean? Who, who are who are they? Yeah, yeah. So these are groups that have been used quite a lot in the study of birds, mainly in the Northern Hemisphere, but a little bit here in Australia as well. And they basically describe how a bird or any any animal um, responds to urban development. So your avoiders are the ones who, as their name suggests, that they're avoiding urban areas as much as they can. They just can't get all the resources they need in cities. So they tend to be pretty restricted to those bushland areas that might be around the fringes of our cities. Um, our adapters will um, kind of live in our suburbs but they may still need to visit those bushland areas. Say, for example, um, things like some of our cockatoo species, they need tree hollows to nest. So they might need to move back to a bushland area when it's time, um, when it's breeding season. And then our exploiters are the ones who, they just love it. They Cities are perfect for them. They found a way to make it work. Um, and they're the ones that are always turning up in our gardens. They might even be using buildings as a form of habitat. Um, So these are often things like uh, Australian magpies are a perfect example in Melbourne. They are everywhere Um, and also introduced species. So birds that have been brought to Australia. So things like our common miners um, or blackbirds, people tend to have them in their gardens a lot as well. Yeah, I have a lot of blackbirds in my garden. They love to uh, mess up my mulch. (laughs) Yes, they they will do that. They're digging around in <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Um, having to turn to, to green mulch most of the time, which has been a, a good journey for me, learning to grow things like warrigal greens that are a bit more resilient um, against the yep. against the blackbirds. But um, so as I understand it, the the noisy miners are what we would call an urban exploiter type of bird. So it's actually quite interesting. So when somebody else came along and actually categorized Melbourne's birds. They said a noisy miner was an adapter, which kind of puts them in that middle category. But I would argue that that has changed since um, they were first classified, that noisy miners have actually gotten better at using urban areas over time so that now we might consider them to be urban exploiters. And folks would probably be familiar with 
minor birds, but they might have encountered various different types of miners, including different spellings of yes. minor, right? So maybe we could just spend a moment yes. kind of um, explaining the difference between the noisy minor and the common minor. Yeah, absolutely. So the noisy minor is the native one. So they, they've always been in Australia and they're a species of honey eater. So they're mainly feeding on nectar from flowers. So things like gum trees, or if you have like grevilleas, they love grevilleas. Um, and then they'll also feed on insects as well. They're a little bit um, happy to pick and choose between different food sources. And then the Indian or the common miner, that species has been introduced to Australia. So it was brought here from somewhere in Europe. I'm not entirely sure where. Um, but yeah, they, they were not here naturally. And they're the ones that really love cities. They're the ones that are possibly nesting in your gutters at home. They will also cause issues around tree hollows because they will nest in gum tree hollows and they'll kind of bully um, other native birds out and take over those those resources. Right. So both types of minor bird uh, can be bullies to other species of bird. But, they can, But yes. I suppose looking specifically at this kind of um, uh, maybe urban urban forest or kind of peri-urban bush bushland remnant environments like you were looking at in in your study um going back to this idea of kind of the different different types of birds and how they have adapted to or not adapted to urbanization you mentioned the uh urban avoiders so are they birds like the superb fairy wren like the um the thornbills, the, the striated thornbills and the grey fantails, are they all sort of in this urban avoider category? So they're yeah, really, so yeah, they'll sorry. all either be uh, they'll they'll either be um avoiders or adapters. Some of them might be slightly more tolerant than others, but certainly not in the urban exploiter end of things. And so they're all really relying on these kind of remnant patches of shrub of kind of canopy tree um and then there's birds like the noisy miner who also rely on the um the shrubs the trees you said that they love you know the nectar of of grevilleas but they are as the pockets of vegetation get smaller and smaller the noisy miner can kind of um overtake or because because they're more adaptable they can then take over more space more uh, both the um the kind of sparse areas and the revegetated areas they kind of yeah they they will um exploit what the other birds can't i suppose yeah yeah absolutely so everything you said is totally correct there that they're both our, our small urban avoider birds and noisy miners are kind of using the same habitats. But the main difference is that noisy miners, um, they're called edge specialists. So that means they like to hang out on the very edge of a patch of bushland. And they do that because they like things to be slightly more open. So they can perch up high in a gum tree and they can see their territory really clearly. So it's nice and easy for them to defend their space. Um, Whereas the the smaller birds are probably liking things to be a bit more dense, have more shrubs around them so they feel more protected. 
Um, so they're likely to be kind of in the middle of those bushland patches. So the noisy miners will control all around the edges and then our small birds are all hanging out together in the middle. But as the patches get smaller and smaller over time, because we've cleared them for houses, you kind of have less and less space available for those smaller birds and more kind of edge areas that the noisy miners can take over. Yeah, and something really, to me, really interesting about this study and kind of about the the place of, of noisy miners in, in the urban ecosystem for me is that they these birds kind of resist easy categorization um you know you you when you were explaining who the noisy miners are you used the term honey eater they're part of the honey eater kind of Mm -hmm. family and honey eater is a category of bird that I have a lot of fondness for I think of you know the New Holland honey eater and um and of course in uh I suppose you would know a whole lot more about this than than I would, but in my sort of basic basic level understanding of ecology, you know, I, I sort of have a a default of native species being good and and worth preserving, yes. and then introduced species being sort of problematic or um, you know they're the species that that deserve deserve attention in terms of like ecosystem management. And so then, mm. then, then in comes the noisy miner who doesn't actually fit into that easy binary categorization of of how to care for the ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I wonder if if you could kind of speak to, uh, I suppose how, what does this mean for for how we kind of relate to the noisy miner? Yeah, it's it is really tricky because it is a native species, unlike the common miner, like it. It has evolved with all of the other birds that are occurring in our city, and yet they're now becoming this really problematic force. Um, And I think that is basically our fault because we've created habitats that are really helping the noisy miner out and and not helping those smaller bush birds out. So we've kind of tipped the balance in their favour. Um. So, yeah, it's really hard because they are a bird that I think we probably need to start thinking about controlling at some point in the future. But we, we're going to need to change the way that we, we think about them as a native species. And I guess it's similar to when, say, eastern grey kangaroos can get incredibly abundant in fenced areas and they eat all the food and suddenly they're, they're running out of things to eat and they have nowhere else to go they're a native species, they belong there, but in certain situations they can also be problematic. Or perhaps so the brush-tailed possum about... as well being sort of a yeah, problematic yeah. problematic local species, especially in urban urban environments. So, yeah, yeah do, uh, what are, do you have suggestions for some strategies for, for kind of helping out or helping out the forest, yeah, so... forest birds, I should say? Yes. Yeah, so... The, the best thing we can do is to try and make the habitat less suitable for noisy miners so that it's harder for them to defend their territory, harder for them to produce offspring come breeding season in the hopes that their numbers might decrease naturally. Um, so in order to do that, we just need, we need more shrubs. We need more mid-storey vegetation. So a lot of our parklands in Melbourne are just open grass 
probably exotic lawn, and then a couple of scattered eucalypts. And that's really perfect habitat for the noisy miner because it's so easy for them to defend the space. So we need to kind of have a look at where we can get more shrubs and and more understory um, plants in there so that there are places for our smaller birds to hide. Yeah, I was reading your... um reading your article and I just wrote a note to myself don't just plant trees was like one of my take-home messages was sort of you know um that of course more trees is good but but as you're saying the mid-story vegetation um for yeah and so um mid-story vegetation we're thinking things like shrubs are we thinking ground cover as well yeah yeah absolutely so anything that's going to make it a bit more complex like the bush birds or the forest birds whatever you want to call them they like things to have a bit more complexity so they can jump around and have a safe space within a couple of shrubs or um, things like the superb berry wren will be foraging for insects so they they're going to want some understory vegetation to find those insects in all of that is going to be really important. Hmm. Um, so that's something that that I'll be keeping in mind, and also something for for kind of the the enthusiastic uh, gardeners amongst us to to think about. Um, I'm going to play a little um, piece of audio now, which it's very quiet, so I'm not sure how much it will come through. But this is a sound. Uh, I found on the free free sound archive and this is the sound of a noisy minor chick um and towards the end of this mm-hmm. piece there is the sound of um what the recordist has said is an alarm call from the parents so I suppose this is an example of the territorial parents looking over the noisy minor chicks perhaps uh something that we might want to avoid in urban space um and in a moment, going to have a listen to some more um, noisy minor recordings. Um, there's the alarm call there. Jacinta, thanks so much for, for joining me on The Grapevine to, to talk about your research. Um, wh- where are you at now? Are you, are you kind of on to studying different species, different environments? Um, so at the moment, I am, I'm 10 days out from submitting my PhD. Wow. So it's a very exciting time. <laughs> yeah. Huge. Um, huge. Yes, you, it's fine. How are you talking to, to me? Because <laughs> it's important. You're looking very, very sane and and um, you know, <laughs> on top of things. So I commend you for that. Yes, <laughs> trying to be. Yes. Um. So yeah, the, this this whole project is about to wrap up. Um. And then I'm not quite sure what's next. So I guess I I'll see what happens early next year. But I'm I'm very keen to keep studying birds in urban areas and to try and think about ways that we can improve habitat for them. Well, really looking forward to to seeing and hearing what's next. Jacinta Humphrey, uh, PhD candidate, soon to be uh, soon to be Dr. Jacinta Humphrey um, of Latrobe University, uh, speaking to us about noisy miners. Thanks so much, Jacinta. Thanks, Sue. Thank you. Melbourne's own Triple R. Really?
Maria Sumajo is joining me uh, to talk about a project that is running at the moment um, at La Mama. And also in the studio with me on The Grapevine this morning is Victoria Winata, who is an artist, a poet, a student, many things. Um, Ria and Victoria, thanks so much for joining me on The Grapevine this morning. Thank you, Kirby. Um, now, there, this is sort of a interesting... Um, I'm... I'm uh, finding it a little challenging to know where to start in this conversation because there are two quite distinct projects that you're each here to to chat with me about, um, but there are very significant connections between them. Um, so there's two uh, two projects. Uh, one is is running now. One is coming up. Um, Ria, you are part of a team who is putting on a project called Surat Suratnya, which is running now at La Mama. And Victoria, you are presenting May 1998 mm-hmm. um, at the Motley Bauhaus from this Wednesday. Um, and the two projects have a very significant connection. Yep. Um, I wonder if you could tell me about the connection. Both of these... Um performances, plays, are about major events in Indonesia. Um, Both of those events really um, stand out as extremely (laughs) violent um, events, Um, unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. And both of them are not, have not been really um, spoken about or Mm -hmm. acknowledged um, in Indonesia properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and probably around the world, I think there there's not as much information about them available mm. to people in and in Australia. Too. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So these two projects are um, telling stories of events that bookend the Suharto era mm. in Indonesia. Um, Ria, the event that you are um, involved with is um, called Surat Suratnya and it's inspired by the true experience of an Australian woman named Ibu Helen who was living in Jakarta um, between 1965 and 1967 um, and then uh, during a violent purge of the political left um, in Indonesia um, Ibu Helen was forced to move with her family, forced to move to Melbourne um, now, the even within Surat, Suratnya, there, there are two sort of um, two distinct projects, even within that one project, yeah. right? Um, so, the one that you are um, that you've created and that you'll be performing is called Between the Letters. Yes, could you tell me about that? Yeah. So, um, I just want to say, firstly, um, these are very um, it's, a, it's a story that's very personal <laughs> to me and my family. Um, I think it's okay to say, you know, it's my my mother's story, my parents' story, mm. and that I had always felt it was very important to tell this story somehow over the years, and I have done that in small kind of ways but uh it really was just too much for me and I was so grateful when um Wawan Sofwan who is a really um respected um director and actor um in Indonesia um heard about my mum's letters that she had written during that time and read them and was interested to create 
um, write a monologue based on that. And so uh, I stepped back from <laughs> any kind of creative decisions around that because um, it's a really huge story mm. and, you know, I couldn't really have any great, you know, creative <laughs> input <laughs> into telling that story, I felt. And it was, it's been an amazing team who've, who've taken that on. So I um, am... Uh, offering kind of a, a contemplative space um, before people go in to the theatre at La Mama um, and uh, with some uh, sound, uh, sort of re- recorded sounds and then I'm um, playing a, a gong and it's very very much just creating um, a kind of a grounding mm-hmm. space before people go into the theatre because there's so much overwhelming yeah. um you know, news at the moment of, of similar, you know, violent events happening and I felt that was really important and it was important for, for me <laughs> as well to do something like that, yeah. And can you tell me about the the process of, I suppose you said that you uh, kind of handed over the letters mm. in a way that you it's almost like you needed some distance from, yeah, from well, the content of the letters. Is actually, that right? you know, my, my mother is still alive and she chose to hand them over, which was very, you know, brave of her to, to let them, um, this team, tell the story. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, Wawan has worked with Sandra Fiona Long, um, who's a Melbourne-based writer, director, performer. Um, they've, I don't know, they've been working together for, must be 25 years now. Mm. Uh, yeah, so she translated um, and uh, we have a um, really incredible actress, Ellen Marning, playing basically kind of the role of my mother and just yeah to bring such kind of sensitivity and dedication all of them to the to the project yeah mm. so I'm so with my mum and I are very happy yeah mm. so the, the the project is currently um it's running at the moment at La Mama you're um we're sold I've, out yeah amazing congratulations <laughs> which is great so we have yeah. another week yep. we're sold out and I and I would say that because you know there there's people I think not turning up, you know, maybe a couple every every night. We have, um, you know, like COVID is around, so so people who really really want to come and see it, um, it's worth trying your luck at coming a bit earlier to the box office and getting on the waiting list. That's a great yeah. tip. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, and you mentioned that your mom, you, yourself, and your mom are very happy with the performance. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about yeah. what that experience has been like for you and your mom, kind of experiencing the work. Yeah. Uh, we were nervous because uh, there's you know a reference to there's references to these really um, horrific events and we were really nervous um, I guess about how do you share that information with people without you know overly kind of dramatizing it or um, overwhelming people and um, so we my mother was interviewed. Um, by Wawan and and Sandra, there was lots of kind of like translation into Indonesian, then back into English, and then mm-hmm. back to Indonesian. It was a really interesting process, and I think in that process, the information was really the important information was really distilled. And my mother's voice, I think, is very clear. Actually, very yeah, very it's um, you know very simply delivered, um, very directly de- delivered, and that's uh, been really interesting. Then to have conversations with people um, after the performance who were very moved and also I think uh, grateful that they are aware of these 
events and actually connected with a, a personal story rather yes. than just you know reading about it. There are mm. books that are written about these events. But hearing through my mother's experience, I think, yeah, has been really powerful for a lot of people. Yeah, including for... I just wanted to say including mm. for myself because I went to see Surat Suratnya yesterday. Mm. And that space, that contemplative space that Ria provided, I mean, I stepped in and I almost immediately started crying. <laughs> it might have yeah. been because of my jet lag and the exhaustion, but it was very <laughs> emotionally touching. I just sat there and I cried and I was very grateful mm. for that space. And I thought, you. you know... When I watched the performance, Ellen Morning, she did, like as an Indonesian watching an Australian woman do that, I felt so grateful for the mm. sensitivity she took to approach this story because, yeah, I just stepped in there. I listened to the monologue. It was so simple, but it was so moving and so touching. And, yeah, I'm one of those people who feel like I connected with it at a very personal, deep level. Mm, thank mm. you. Thanks. And, Victoria, you are... Yeah. Um, you have a, a project of your own um, about to open yep. at the Motley Bauhaus, which looks at events sort of at the other, at the tail end yes. of the Suharto era. I'm curious about how the two um, teams or the two projects sort of came to yep. to know of one another. Yeah. Yeah. It's like... Um, so we did not plan this. No. <laughs> they just coincidence. Yeah, yeah, it was a coincidence, mm. and it's an interesting coincidence because the Indonesian elections are coming up soon, mm. and these are very political topics. Um, but anyway, um, mm. and we are not trying to send any type of political message, really. Yeah, uh, but the way we came to know about each other is, I mean, I met Ria last year. Um, and we've sort of been in touch since mm. then because last year I went and saw Wawan Sofwan's monologue about President Sukarno and that's where I met Sandra Fiona along. And because I've sort of kept in touch with uh, these artists, these team, I've, I, I mean, I let Sandra know about May 1998 as a project and then she made a really generous offer like, uh, why don't we market both of these shows side by side because of the interesting mm. connection they have to each other. So I'm very grateful for mm. you allowing us to mm-hmm. yeah promote ourselves alongside it you. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm. Um, and uh, the the project that you first met Sandra at yeah. um, Wawan Safwan's performance was that here here in Melbourne? Mm. Yep. It was here in Melbourne. It was from la- it was in November last year. I watched his monologue called Beso atau Tidak Sama Sekali, Tomorrow or Never, which is a monologue about President Sukarno at La Mama. Right. Um, and it sounds like there's quite a strong kind of Indonesian diaspora yeah. almost in here in Melbourne. Yeah. The the community of like, theater makers, mm. artists. I would say, like, it's an interesting community because at the same time, it's very strong, but it's also very close-knit and very tight. Because, I mean, with May 1998 as a project, I've been very hesitant to talk about it with just anyone. I chose to, I wanted to talk about it to this the team of Surat Suratnya because I know, like, for example, people like Ria have a very personal and deep understanding of intergenerational trauma, which I feel and explore in my play. So I would say it's like, it's a very strong community, but it's very small and you have to be very careful who you work with in general. Right. So there's a level of trust yeah. when you're mm. sort of deciding what, yeah. what, what and, and, and who to share with. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. 
Um, well, if you feel comfortable doing so, I'd love to hear some more about May 1998. Yeah. So May 1998 um, is a monologue I've written and will be performing myself. It takes, um, so it's going to be delivered from the point of view of a woman who experienced and witnessed the riots directly. And it's a bit of an abstract monologue where she shifts through her memories of the riots and shifting through present day because I'm less interested in telling, for example, a chronological story about the May riots, but more so on how it impacts an individual person, somebody who's been a victim and a survivor of the riots, because, yeah, traumatic memory is something that I've seen in my family and in people around me. So I'm more interested in humanizing the people who went through this instead of just, Mm -hmm. yeah, telling a historical story. And your the the story itself i suppose the the time period that you're looking at of uh may 1998 that that month historically is celebrated or or remembered yeah. as the beginning of the um reformasi era yeah. in indonesia with the end end of the suharto era yeah um and you know you do you do mention the riots mm-hmm. you mentioned the time of tragedy but but as you're saying you you're looking at this through a first person yeah. kind of personal yeah, yeah. perspective and even the choice of the the kind of first person pronoun i is, yeah. is that correct that the, yes. the protagonist yeah. um is known as i yeah she's <laughs> she's known as i because yeah i chose not to name her and the reason is because ultimately this is an account that it's inspired by personal accounts, things that I've read, conversations that I've had. Ultimately, it's like a fictionalized account. So, And it's not about just any particular individual who I'm trying to portray. And I, the reason why I left her unnamed is because she could be anybody. But at the same time, I've included a lot of detail, a lot of personal anecdotes there to make her seem like she is somebody who real who's real and who survived but at the same time she's anybody because you know so many horrible things happen to so many women during these riots and so many people live through this I cannot possibly tell just Mm -hmm. an individual story because everyone's was different and everyone's is complex and everyone's is yeah personal hmm so it sounds to me like there's some sort of some sort of universality within yeah. this very personal individual story as well. Yeah, I would say so because it's like and something that's important for both of our works I think to mention is the fact that these are happen- events that happened in Indonesian history but everyone mm. can connect to them because I feel like any but any human being should be able to empathize with the type of suffering and also the type of kindness and humanity and love that's been put into these works, mm. which is why it's so mm. important to realize them as yeah universal stories. Mm. And the 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 image the the kind of um, promo image for Surat Suratnya mm. is um, I'm assuming that's the the actor yes. um, Ellen Marning who yes. is kind of preparing a meal, <laughs> right? And the, yeah. the 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 monologue performance is called Our Last Dinner was Sayur Lode. Yeah. So I wonder if you could talk to me about this um, this meal or this kind yeah. of theme of food in yeah. in the work. Uh, my mother um, loves cooking Indonesian food and 
even now she she's she still cooks Indonesian food mm. uh, even though she's lived in Australia for many years <laughs> um, it's a big big part of um, the 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 play uh, Wawan has very cleverly woven in Javanese philosophy um, mm. in relationship to food yeah. and uh, I don't want to spoil it too much for people who come but yeah it's a very very strong connection with Javanese philosophy and um, the actual the ingredients of the cooking and he's woven that into the story and Ellen um, has mastered <laughs> the art of cooking this particular dish that um, is a very very special <laughs> dish Sayulode um, and part of her like her her text is just interwoven with her her cooking she's just yeah incredible <laughs> chopping skills yeah. right so she, is, is ellen um cooking while yes performing? and the smells yeah, yeah wafting through the space it's it just incredibly evocative yeah it's very clever too i have to say because uh, yeah with heavy kind of content like this um yeah you really you really need you know, a, a, a way in, and it's, it's very great. You know, smelling food is very grounding and um, mm. uplifting. So yeah, yeah, mm. yeah it works really well. Um, Surat Saratnya is running uh, now until December seventeenth. Congratulations! It is sold out, but yeah. as you were saying earlier, um, you might be able to sneak in if you if you yeah, show up on the night. Um, that's at La Mama um, and Victoria Winata. Your performance, yes. May nineteen ninety eight, um, is running from uh, December thirteenth to sixteenth at the Motley Bauhaus. Yep. Ria and Victoria, thank you so much for for being here and joining me on the Grapevine. Thank you, thank Kirby. You. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.